Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Momentous morning, we finished the book of Matthew this morning. We're gonna look at all 20 verses of Matthew 28. That's our text. The topic, Matthew ends his gospel with Jesus giving his followers what has been called the Great Commission throughout the church age. The title of our message, The Commish. Let's have a word of prayer. Well, before we do that, I might point out that first service really enjoyed that title and gave me a lot of encouragement as opposed to what just happened. So from this point forward, I can't help what might happen, but let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you seriously for bringing us here, uh, your saints and perhaps some who don't know you, who are here, Lord, and under the power of the word of God can be drawn to Jesus Christ by grace through faith in his resurrection from the dead. For those of us who are brothers and sisters, Lord, I pray that we would be immensely encouraged today by the power of your resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agree, say amen. If you're stressed out about Christmas shopping, I can help. Today is December 14th, 2014, but it's also December 1st, 2014. You see, we are using what is called the Gregorian calendar, but there is a Julian calendar, and on the Julian calendar, it's only December 1st. I've just given you 13 more shopping days. <laughs> you should be thankful. Now, there are lots of calendars, and today is different on all of them. Today is Safar 21, 1436 on the Islamic calendar. It's Azar 23, 1393 on the Persian calendar. It's Agrahayana 23, 1936 on the Indian subcontinent. And in between services, somebody texted me and let me know it's star date 68417.9. In fact, they couldn't believe I didn't know that. I can also tell you that it is Kislev 22, 5775 on the Hebrew calendar. Now the Hebrew calendar should be of interest to us because unless we understand its dates, we'll miss a lot of what was happening when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead on the 16th day of the month Nisan on the Hebrew calendar. That date probably means little or nothing to most of us, but any Jew recognizes it as the Feast of First Fruits. In fact, Jesus was crucified on Passover. He was in the tomb for the Sabbath following Passover, which was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then he rose on first fruits. What's the significance of Jesus rising from the dead on the feast of first fruits? I'll organize my answer around two points. Number one, Jesus' first fruits guarantees you will one day rise. And number two, Jesus' first fruits guarantees you can every day serve. First of all, let's look at Jesus rising from the dead as first fruits and what that means. Now, let me make something clear. I do not think that we as Gentile believers ought to celebrate the Jewish feasts. We're under no obligation, as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians, regarding food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So we're not drifting back into Judaism. We're not going to suggest the Jewish calendar. We're not going to start observing the Jewish feasts. This is popular uh, today. Uh, and, and, uh, but any time somebody says you need to keep the Sabbath, you need to eat certain diet, you need to keep certain feasts, Paul the Apostle made it abundantly clear, no you don't, just forget about that. 
Uh, you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't stumble us. Eat whatever you want. Eat all the bacon your heart desires. <laughs> Just don't stumble anybody doing it. I don't know how you could stumble anybody eating bacon. I guess if you were a glutton, right? I'll leave it there, but anyway. So we're not, we're not talking about observing anything Jewish. Having said that, it's foolish to ignore the fact that Jesus fulfilled all the Hebrew spring feasts to the letter on the very day they occurred in his first coming. How did he do that? Well, he fulfilled Passover by dying on the cross just as the Passover lambs were being slain in the temple on Nisan 14. He was God's final sacrificial lamb. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As his body lay in the tomb the next day, Jesus fulfilled the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Celebrated on Nisan 15, it marks the beginning of a seven-day period during which the eating of leavened bread is forbidden. Leaven being a symbol of sin, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter five, Jesus fulfilled the feast in that his was the only sinless life ever lived and his was the only sinless body ever to be entombed. As for first fruits, it was an offering of the very first of the harvest brought to the Lord, representing confidence in the fuller harvest to come. Jesus was the first person to rise from the dead, never to die again. His resurrection promised a greater harvest to come. And for one thing, he wasn't the only person raised from the dead in such a manner at his resurrection. We read last week in Matthew 27, 52 and three, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. These saints raised right after Jesus were first fruits of a greater harvest to come. Their resurrection on the Feast of First Fruits guarantees that all believers in Jesus Christ will in fact be resurrected. There's another spring feast on that Jewish calendar, Feast of Pentecost. Listen carefully to this quote from Zola Levitt. He says, the fourth feast, Pentecost, occurs 50 days after First Fruits, and on that very day, the Holy Spirit attended the Pentecost festivities at the temple site like a mighty rushing wind. Pentecost represents the summer harvest, a larger harvest than first fruits, but not so large as the fall crop, and the Holy Spirit harvested 3,000 people that day. What happened on Nisan 16 has a direct bearing on you rising from the dead. You and I are among the ongoing greater harvest until the end of the age. And so in verse one, now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now these gals had spent a restless Sabbath waiting for the first moment they could go to the tomb of Jesus Christ. We're told elsewhere they wanted to further anoint Jesus' body for burial as the initial preparations had been too hasty. They fully expected Jesus to be in his tomb. It's been pointed out many times that the first unbelievers of the resurrection of Jesus Christ were the believers, and that's very telling. They did not expect the Lord to rise from the dead. Verse two, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothes as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. What's with the earthquake? 
Well, it wasn't just the human race that was affected by Adam and Eve's sin. The whole creation, we're told, groans waiting for redemption. This earthquake prefigured that future day when there will be a new earth and a new heaven wherein dwells righteousness. Angels are fierce. They are terrible in that old English use of the word. 185,000 Assyrian warriors were no match for one angel in the Old Testament who killed them in their sleep. So it's no wonder a handful of Roman guards shook for fear of him, even though he seemed to show up in uh, uh, you know, holiday clothes. I mean, he didn't really have a sword. He it didn't look like he was gonna kill anybody. He came to make an announcement uh, to these ladies. But they were afraid of him as well they should be. Jesus was already resurrected. The angel didn't roll away the stone so that Jesus too, uh, could get out. It was so that men could see in. One author described it as, because people say, well, you know, Jesus in his post-resurrection appearances, he just would be in a room and then he'd be gone. They said it's like light going through glass in, in, is the closest thing that he could uh, give as an analogy. And so Jesus didn't, Jesus wasn't pacing up and down behind the stone saying, eh, it's time. <laughs> Half past the freckle, hello, anybody out there? Where's my angel? He was already gone, already raised. The angel came so that men could see in. Uh, verse five, the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. This is one of the greatest announcements of all time. These are some of the greatest words in the history of the world. I wonder if this angel practiced them in front of a mirror. Did you ever do that? I've never done that. I'm too ugly to do that, but I mean, who wants to look at, what, I don't, anyway, forget that. Too much espresso. No espresso in between services anymore. I wonder if this angel thought there would be a large crowd at the tomb. You'd think that with Jesus' promise he'd rise on the third day, multitudes would be on hand in lawn chairs, just lined up. Those guys with the carts, you know, with the stuff at parades and all, you know, cotton candy. See him raised from the dead on the third day. I wonder, on the other hand, if the angel thought no one would be at the tomb. After all, why go to an empty tomb? Jesus had said before his death, that he would see his disciples in Galilee. In Matthew 26, 32, after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. And so maybe no one would be at the tomb. Whatever he thought, angels are God's messengers and this one faithfully delivered his message without worrying or wondering or considering his audience. I take every chance I get to comfort myself and you that God rewards faithfulness, not results. Do what God tells you, go where God sends you, speak what God gives you to say. Don't wonder about who or how many will be gathered or might be affected. I'm always haunted by that one Beatles song with a line, Father McKenzie writing the words to a sermon that no one will hear. I think of that every Saturday. <laughs> the Lord, he just has a sense of you. Gene, would you deliver a sermon if no one was there to hear? And I said, you know I would, Lord. Be weird, but I'd do it, so. Then I'd do an Abraham thing. Would, you, would I deliver for 10? You know, the, anyway, but. 
Matthew 28, 8. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. They went right away. They did not pass go or collect $200. They just went. They ran into Jesus. It suggests that I have the greatest chance of Jesus meeting me along the way if I'm being obedient to his direction. If I'm on the way that Jesus has given me, he's going to meet me along that way. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now, it's interesting that even though Jesus said he'd see them in Galilee, both before he died and after he rose, and the angel confirmed it, said the same thing, it's interesting the disciples hung around Jerusalem behind locked doors for at least another week. It was that Sunday evening that the Lord appeared to the disciples with Thomas being absent. And then one week later, he appeared to them again in Jerusalem with Thomas in the group. The Lord is so patient with us, especially in our fears. Do not fear is in the Bible many, many times. And you know what it tells me? That we are a fearful people. And it's nice to know that the Lord is patient with us in our fears. Are you waiting in fear about something that the Lord has told you to do? Maybe telling someone that you're a believer or taking some other step of faith? Jesus is patient. He will be patient with you. He has been and he will be. But he also wants his perfect love to cast out your fear. He wants you to continue on that path. Now, did you notice that Jesus called the disciples his brethren? It's a word that first off would communicate his forgiveness. John had been at the cross, but the other disciples had scattered and Peter had three times denied the Lord. Still, he said, these are my brethren. Go find my brethren and tell them I'll meet them in Galilee. What a great word. How tender the Lord is. Someone once said you can tell the difference between when Satan is talking to you and when the Lord is talking to you by the tone of voice. Uh, The Lord may reprove you, he may correct you, he may chasten you, but he is patient with you and he loves you. And it is always for your good and his glory. Now if someone rose from the dead, never to die again, and that someone did so on first fruits, and many others rose with him in glorious eternal bodies and hung around Jerusalem for a few days, wouldn't you get on board and want to live forever? Not these guys, verse 11. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying to them, Uh, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. It must have been a lot of money, like enough to retire on with a new identity in Spain. No Roman soldier worth his salt would want to admit to dereliction of duty on such a massive scale. All they had to do was guard a tomb for a few hours and they all fell asleep. And of course, interesting, how did they know who stole the body if they were asleep at the time? It's an insanely stupid story. Later on in the book of Acts, Peter was put in prison. He was guarded by 16 Roman soldiers. An angel helped him escape. 
Finding him missing, Herod ordered all 16 of the guards executed. This is a very, very serious thing. Roman soldiers were no guys to mess around with. You've seen Gladiator. I mean, it's rough. They're, you know, they didn't just fall asleep guarding tombs. If a person is not a believer in Jesus Christ, they have some saying as to why they do not believe he rose from the dead. They may have never been in, are able to articulate it, but you know, if you went out and asked the man on the street, you know, why do you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ? They would, they would come up with something. They would probably say one of these things that we see in the scripture, like, oh, the disciples stole his body. He didn't really rise from the dead. He wasn't really dead. Um, they, they, didn't, they put him in a different tomb and they couldn't find it the next day. They didn't have a, a map to the tombs in those days. And so people have a saying as to why they think Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. I used to think it was up to me as a believer to prove Jesus rose from the dead and then I realized it's a fact of history. So really it's up to the non-believer to explain the empty tomb and all the explanations are insufficient. Are you familiar with the expression, don't bother me with the facts? I've already made up my mind. I first heard it from Foghorn Leghorn. He used to talk to his little nephew that way. Anyone who denies the resurrection is about as insightful as Foghorn Leghorn. And so you ask them, what do you think about the resurrection? Hear their answer and then say, no, I say, I say, I say, boy, uh, that's not right. Or maybe not. Now concerning your resurrection, the apostle, we're almost done. The apostle Paul wrote, it's all right, you can bring visitors next week, I'll be calm. <laughs> for, the Apostle Paul wrote, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Now that goes from the resurrection of Jesus all the way to the end of the age. Paul elaborated on what he meant in 1 Thessalonians when he said, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. We, the believers of the church age that began on the harvest feast of Pentecost, will all be made alive. We will all be resurrected unto glorious eternal bodies. Those who have died physically and who will yet die will be raised from the dead. Those who are alive at the Lord's coming for the church will be raptured. They will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Israel had a very specific calendar with its very specific feast days. They also had a prophecy from Daniel of the exact calendar date that their Messiah would enter Jerusalem. While we in the New Testament are always careful not to set dates, God was all about setting dates in the Old Testament. He said through Daniel, this is the exact date the Messiah is coming, and then he gave the feasts and Jesus fulfilled all of the spring feasts on the very day they were happening. The Jews missed every one of those days, rejecting Jesus as the one who fulfilled them in his first coming. The result, as we have seen throughout Matthew's gospel, is that there is a postponement in the establishing of the kingdom of heaven on the earth. 
We live during this postponement, and since about chapter 12 or so, the Lord has been telling us how we ought to live as we wait for his return. And so in verses 16 through 20, Jesus' first fruits guarantees you serve every day. Now, certain passages of scripture are so popular, or they're so beloved, or they're so essential that we've given them their own titles. The Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, the Beatitudes, all in the Gospel of Matthew. If I say the love chapter, you know I'm talking about 1 Corinthians 13. The Gospel of Matthew ends with what we appropriately call the Great Commission. Verse 16, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Jesus must have been quite the hiker. He spent a lot of time going up mountains and some of his greatest sayings were delivered from those heights. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now the doubt of the 11 had been settled in Jerusalem once and for all in those two evening appearances I referenced, one without Thomas present, and then the next week with Thomas there. Scholars have therefore suggested that when Jesus appeared on this mountain, there were more of his followers than just the 11. The four gospels record at least 11 resurrection appearances of Jesus to hundreds of individuals over a period of several weeks before he ascended into heaven. One of those appearances is listed in 1 Corinthians 15 where we read, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present but some have fallen asleep or some of them have died. It may be that this great commission was given not just to the 11, but to this greater group of over 500 on that mountain. Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now as the creator of all things, Jesus always had authority in heaven and on earth. Here he was letting them know that the mission he was sending them on would be empowered and authorized by him. As a chaplain, I've been to many swearing-in ceremonies uh, where they, the new officers get sworn in and then somebody pins their badge on them. And what's happening there in one sense is that the the city of Lemoore, the city of Hanford, the state of California, the United States of America uh, are saying we are standing behind you and giving you the power to do your job and the equipment to do your job in our name and we're not leaving you. No one ever gets up and raises their hand and has the chief say, now you're on your own. It just doesn't happen that way. And so that's what's happening. Jesus saying, hey, you are being empowered. You're going to be deputized. I'm standing behind you in what I'm going to tell you right now. He says in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then Matthew adds his amen. I think we absolutely must refer to another passage or we might miss something incredible. Jesus said go, but before he ascended into heaven, he also said don't go until the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, has come upon you. He hints at that here when he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But in Acts, he said to the assembled believers, he said, wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
This baptism with the Holy Spirit is the way Jesus empowers his followers to fulfill what we call the Great Commission. When Jesus said go, the verb should be translated as you are going, wherever you are going, wherever you find yourself, in your life, it might be a a bad but interesting paraphrase. It isn't a call to some foreign mission field. It could be, there are those who are called to a foreign field, but it's not that. It's a description of you as a missionary in the field you find yourself. Jesus said, wherever you are, Whatever you're doing, you're going in the world and this is, these are the things I want to do through you. Here's what I'm getting at. Jesus was raised from the dead. We will one day be raised from the dead. In the meantime, we are told, and this is from Romans 8:11, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then the Apostle Paul elsewhere said, this is Philippians 3.10, he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And so there's an indication here that because Jesus has risen from the dead and because we will one day rise from the dead, we also have his resurrection power through the Spirit available to us each and every moment of each and every day. And so the Great Commission isn't something we must do It's something Jesus does. It's something that happens as we are going through our life because of who we are. We are saved individuals who live in the power of the resurrection, having God the Holy Spirit in us and upon us. I love the early chapters of Acts as you watch the disciples figure this out. They had no idea what to do or what they were doing. They just met together, prayed together, Next thing you know, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. They're speaking in other languages that they hadn't learned. The crowd looks at them and says, ah, you guys are all drunk. And Peter says, you guys gonna say anything about this or is it up to me? And Peter gets up, inspired by the Holy Spirit, preaches a sermon before he can get to anything like an altar call because he doesn't know what he's doing. They say, what must we do to be saved? And 3,000 people get saved. What just happened? And they go on living like that. They don't know what to do. Things happen around them. Peter's preaching the gospel. He ends up in prison. He's asleep. They're gonna kill him the next day. He's asleep in chains. The angel I talked about earlier has to kick him and say, get up. This isn't a dream. Let's go. This is gonna, I, I, I don't wanna have to tell a story about this, you know, that kind of a thing. And so these guys, they, they didn't have a strategy and, and even the strategy Jesus gave them, they couldn't figure out until, you know, he said go to Jerusalem and Judea and to all Samaria and all the parts of the world. He had to bring persecution upon them to get them to actually do that. And so what I'm saying is that it's not just let go and let God, that's weird. But you need to have the sense, and I need to have the sense that God is going to do things in and through our lives. He's deputized us, as it were, to represent him, and things are gonna happen. And that's what we're reading about in this great commission. Now, don't get me wrong, we do certain things, but we can only do them as unto the Lord if we understand our empowering. They should then simply happen as we're yielded to Jesus. We're to make disciples of all the nations. This is the only command in these verses, make disciples. How do we do that? Well, Jesus said by baptizing and by teaching. Those are the two things. We understand baptism, of course, to be water baptism. We understand that it follows repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as the outward sign of the inward work of salvation. 
Baptizing here is the culmination of the sharing of Jesus Christ with others, commanding them to repent and be saved. It is the preaching of the gospel all the time, anywhere, everywhere we are going. And those who respond with repentance and faith, who get saved, we're to water baptize to signify their salvation. And so it isn't that you just go into the world and find people to baptize, I think we all know that. It's that you go out into the world preaching the gospel, sharing Christ, walking in the power of the resurrection, and those who become Christians like you, you baptize as they give an outward testimony of the inward work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It was never meant to be a formula Although for the sake of doctrinal clarity, it's a good idea to baptize folks using this description of God whom the Bible presents consistently as one God in three persons. If we were Jewish, we'd know that the Jews practiced baptism. There was a process through which a non-Jew, a Gentile, could become a Jewish proselyte. And that process involved three things, a sacrifice, undergoing circumcision, and then a water baptism. To a Jew, Jesus' reference here to baptize would simply mean that the person had converted as, and was a believer in Jesus Christ. The Jews did not baptize in anyone's name. They had no formula for baptism. Baptizing someone in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit then is an explanation that the Father, Jehovah, is God, and so is the Son, and so is the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but one God in three persons. And so this is Jesus talking to a Jewish audience, saying they're gonna be baptized, and they're gonna be baptized into, or immersed into, the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's an explanation of what's happened in their lives. Albert Barnes wrote this, he said, the union of these three names in the form of baptism proves that the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal with the Father. Nothing would be more absurd or blasphemous than to unite the name of a creature, a man or an angel, with the name of the ever-living God in this solemn rite. If Jesus was a mere man or an angel or a created being, as is held by many who deny his divinity, and if the Holy Spirit is a mere attribute of God or a force, then it would have been the height of absurdity to use a form like this or to direct the apostles to baptize people under them. Now those who are saved, we are to teach, to observe all things that I have commanded you. To know exactly what Jesus intended by teaching, I think we need to take the whole book of Acts as our model and the rest of the New Testament as our text. We have a tendency, even when we're, when we're studying the word or teaching the word, to think, okay, what are the things Jesus actually taught us to do? I, I went to some websites, and, and they mean well, but I found one that said the 49 things that Jesus taught. Well, I think Jesus taught a lot more than 49 things when you consider everything in the book of Acts and everything in the New Testament epistles. And so we have to sometimes uh, fight our tendency to want to drive through the Bible and just see it as a, a quick order. And we need to say, okay, I need to teach uh, everything that Jesus wants me to know, and that, that is gonna require the whole counsel of the word of God. Jesus did not merely say, teach them all the things I have commanded you either. He said, teach them to observe all the things I have commanded you. Teaching to observe, I think, means that we need to be the church called out ones, meeting together in community, ministering one to another in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, 
going out into the world, sharing our faith in Jesus Christ. The actual teaching of the word is fundamental. It is foundational to that process. It must remain the priority in the church. It's job one. But there's a whole lot more that goes into teaching someone to observe the things that Jesus has commanded. Think about when you were learning how to drive. You could technically learn everything you need to know about driving a car from reading books. You could go into the DMV, you could pass all of their tests as far as traffic laws. Maybe you even built your own car out of a kit with a Volkswagen motor and it's in your garage and you, you studied, you know what a gear shift is, you know what a clutch is, you know what a steering wheel is, you've got it all down, but when you go into the DMV and they say, okay, now you're gonna take your behind the wheel test, what, I don't need that. I know everything, I, I know how to observe all the traffic laws. I know everything. Hey, I knew how to drive and my first day in driver's training, I backed up into the car behind me. <laughs> I think I was next to a driver in training yesterday. I was somewhere along Dead Man's Row there, you know, in front of the Target shopping center. I mean, there's, I hate all of that. Getting in and out of in and out is, is just about killing, it's added years to my life, but anyway. <laughs> I'm sitting there at one of the lights and all of a sudden the light turns green and before I could go forward, the car next to me went like 10 feet in reverse, you know, and I know what happened. It was a student driver who, for whatever reason, put the car in reverse while they were waiting there and didn't remember and, and, and the mother was like, oh, and stuff and I thought, man, I gotta get out of here. I'll never get my double-double in this kind of an environment. But uh, so, you know, you, you can't really know how to drive. Flying an airplane, you could, you know, even, I don't know how many times I've crashed in simulators. In fact, I've never successfully flown an airplane in a simulator. And I've tried many times. So you have to observe and you have to get your feet wet, we would say. And so we have to be the church. All things I've commanded you, anything that's found in the completed word of God. And that's why it's important that we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the word. Jesus promised to always be with them, to be with us. By the way, that's a strong claim to deity. Jesus said, I will always be with each of you wherever you are. He's claiming to be omnipresent, which is an attribute of God. And Jesus indicated there'd be an end to this age. History is definitely following a course set down in eternity past, and God, by his providence, keeps history on course. Now, since we're talking feasts on the Hebrew calendar, I should mention what you already know. There are three fall feasts, Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. If Jesus meticulously fulfilled all of the spring feasts on the very day, can we not assume that he will fulfill the fall feasts? I think it's a reasonable assumption because he will be dealing with the nation of Israel and that calendar seems incredibly important to him when it comes to Israel. And by the way, this is a, a mistake a lot of people make. They admit that God has fulfilled many, 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 many prophecies literally to the letter in the past but they look at the future and say, well, all of those are allegorical. He's not really going to come back to Israel. There's not really going to be a tribulation, those kinds of things. It's absurd. Prophecy is prophecy. And so the fall feasts, how is he gonna fulfill them? Well, we don't know. The Feast of Trumpets, Leviticus 23, 24, in the seventh month, in the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing trumpets. 
Now, because we're told that the resurrection and rapture of the church is accompanied by a trumpet blast, some scholars have suggested over the years that the rapture might occur in September on the Feast of Trumpets. I'm not saying it will or that it must, and the Bible nowhere says it will or that it must, but this is why you'll find many people suggesting this from time to time. I do know that the rapture is presented as being imminent. It could happen at any moment. So if it occurs, and it's not September, it's not the Feast of Trumpets, what gives with that? Well, then something else will be the fulfillment of that feast. I I don't know what, but something else will. The Day of Atonement would seem to find its fulfillment after the church has been removed from the earth, at the second coming of Jesus, at the end of the Great Tribulation, because we know that all Israel will be finally and fully saved, and God's atonement of Israel will be complete. The Feast of Tabernacles corresponds first to the 1,000-year reign of Jesus over the earth and then to eternity future because it will be God tabernacling among men forever and ever. And so all of the fall feasts will also be fulfilled on the proper date and in the proper time. Meantime, we are to go, and as we are going, the Lord wants to use us every day to reveal to sick, lost, dying people the power of his resurrection. We are first fruits, not just because we will one day be raised or raptured, but because we can walk in the power of the resurrection right now. Do you want to do something? Then start expecting Jesus to do what he's been doing since he rose from the dead and expect him to do it using you. Let's pray.